Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring, thought-provoking dialogue. I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Melanie Lee. Melanie is Chief Executive of British Life Sciences charity LifeArc. Since her appointment in 2018, Melanie has been working to pull world-class science from bench to bedside to impact patient outcomes. Melanie cut her teeth as a molecular biologist in academia, working with Sir Paul Nurse, amongst others, at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund's Lincoln's Inn Laboratories. Indeed, it was Melanie's Nature paper with Sir Paul in 1987 on expressing a human cDNA library in fission yeast and selecting for clones that can complement a mutant of CDC2 that started a revolution in our understanding of the cell cycle and the development of therapies thereof. Melanie is one of the few contemporary scientists of repute that have successfully bridged a career into industry, leading R&D at Celltech, UCB and BTG to name but a few. Befitting of her achievements and the impact on patient lives her work has had and continues to inspire, she was awarded the CBE for Services to Medical Science in 2019. Today, in addition to heading up LifeArc, Melanie sits on the boards of directors of Sanofi, and it's on the board of trustees at the Dementia Research Institute. Melanie, I'm delighted to have you on Extra Time, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Adam. I'm delighted to be here. So maybe we'll start at the beginning, shall we? Can you, can you tell me a little bit about your journey? You've, you've worked in some really very inspiring um, places with some incredibly inspiring people. Um, how, how has that experience shaped you, um, shaped you today? Yeah, well, I, I was very clearly, even by the age of eight, a scientist. So it's been the greatest privilege to be able to work as a scientist all my life. And I think on the way, I've always met amazing people. Uh, from an inspirational lecturer at York who was called Simon Hardy, he encouraged us to think through difficult unknowns. And I, I actually had the luxury of going into Gene Begg's laboratory in Imperial College at a very interesting time when a lot of um, subsequently uh, famous young scientists were leading their teams. And then, of course, with Paul Nurse at uh, the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, now Cancer Research UK. But Paul's lab was my main work. And as you said, that linked yeast and mammalian cell cycles. Uh, and it showed that the cell cycle of yeast and smaller organisms was very relevant to understanding cancer. So I think all I can say is it's a most privileged environment when you're working with people who are passionate about something. And it's particularly nice in academia where you meet whole cohorts of people who are passionate about one particular subject and go really deeply into it. That work, of course, has been instrumental in the, um, in the, the PhDs, the postdocs and the academic careers of many hundreds, if not thousands of scientists um, over the last couple of decades. So, so how did you make the leap from academic bench to industry? Yeah, that was a difficult leap, actually, because although it was easy to conceive of myself making the move, 
uh, the actuality of the move was difficult. So I moved into industry from Paul's laboratory because I wanted to have children. And at the time, an academic career seemed to have long timelines to secure and destinations open to me might have drawn me away from where I could have been with my husband and work and look after children. So I wanted to pursue a career where I could actually get that right balance. And Paul had visited Glaxo in Greenford and I asked him if he'd find out who I could write to to pursue a job there. And I interviewed there when I was eight months pregnant with my first son and they offered me a job for after my baby was born. So it was really um, a very interesting transition and then 10 years after that after my second baby was born I was recruited out of Glaxo into an executive um, research director role at Celtec and that was a FTSE 100 company so I had 10 years in the most fabulous learning environment of Glaxo and then moved on into this fabulous learning environment of Celtec but at a very different level so the only thing I can say is, although conceptually the transition was easy, the actuality of the transition was difficult because uh, the industrial language and the reason for doing science and that translation outside of just the voyage of discovery translation is product focused and that was quite a difficult transition for me um, but actually once I was there once I had the language I loved every minute of it. And I, I mean, Celtech was one of the UK's first biotech success stories, of course. And um, and you mentioned them being a, a FTSE 100 company before acquisition. The experiences there, I'm sure, will have will have shaped your onward trajectory in industry, and and maybe even um, led you to where you are today. Can, can you just describe maybe some of those experiences? Yeah, the experiences. Um, actually, well, the biggest experience that's probably. Uh, not open to everybody and I was just incredibly fortunate was that at a relatively young age I got to understand board dynamics and being on a board mm -hmm. and so I had on my my CV the fact that I'd been a director and I think it's very difficult in our industry to unless you truly move rapidly through the career ladder of big companies very difficult to actually get that experience so Celtech taught me an awful lot it taught me about different modalities uh, that are therapeutics because of course it was on the leading edge of antibodies at a time when they weren't really established um, molecular entities for therapeutics but it also taught developed me as a leader as well incredibly fortunate time now, Melanie, beyond your real passion and, um, and experience in developing therapies for disease, you and I both, both share an interest in early diagnosis or earlier diagnosis um, of, of disease. And, and indeed, the, the current pandemic has shone a real spotlight on, on the role of tests and, and testing. And what, what change have you seen over the years in attitudes towards detection of disease? Yeah, it, it, that's a great question, Adam, because um, it took me a long time to wonder why the world of therapeutics and diagnostics were always so very separate. And it goes to the fundamental nature of the business model of the industries that they belong in. And therapeutics research has always been the focus of large pharmaco companies and global giants that have grown mainly by acquisition. And that model is um, accepting of the long-term nature of the discovery and then actually gaining the rewards from that return after significant development costs. 
but actually, you know, the world's changed now because the world's demanding much more of our medicines. So we did a tremendous job with some of the broader, more common diseases. But I think now there is a recognition that these diseases are, especially with human genome, these diseases are much more discreet. And with that, there's a higher hurdle, but also a need to combine diagnostics with therapeutics. The, the, the current pandemic, of course, has brought quite a bit of attention from the media on, um, on testing, tests, and, and the UK's diagnostic industry as a whole, which, of course, um, life art play a part of. And what more could the diagnostics industry be doing, do you think, to, to, to support the NHS through this time and also start to deal with the, the terrible backlog of disease that, that we're, we're, we're now starting to face in cancer and other, other diseases? I think what's so great is um, if there's something really good that came out of this pandemic is actually raising the public awareness of the importance of diagnostics. Mm. And um, obviously, I think anybody who didn't understand diagnostics also it still remains a little confused about what different diagnostic tests do? Do they identify the organism? Do they identify that you're infected? Or do they identify whether or not you had the infection and whether or not you're immune to the infection? So I think there's a massive public education going on. What more can the NHS do? Well, I think diagnostic tests can cover so many bases and all of them in the end point to better patient outcomes, better patient experience, more rapid treatment, better matching of the treatment with the actual problem that the patient has, better matching the treatment with the patient's own physiology and biology. So um, I think the, the diagnostics industry really must work very closely with the NHS, but also with the therapeutics companies too. So I talk about the four Ds and I think the new world to really open up the potential of modern medicine is going to be bettered by embracing drugs, diagnostics, devices and data which I will pair up with digital. And through this pandemic we saw where there had been resistance previously, a rapid adoption of some of the digital interfaces um, that we see between patients and their doctors and they've been really understood now for the fact that they can not completely but they can provide considerable connectivity with patients considerable data exchange for the physician and actually if we combine it properly i think it will actually mean that many even clinical studies can be virtually conducted and we can do constant monitoring of patients post procedures which will really enhance that delivery and outcomes in medicine LifeArc's mission, of course, is to, is to pioneer new ways to turn great science into greater patient impact. And, and we've seen you be so present throughout this um, period of time, awarding grants for the repurposing of, of medicines that might be relevant in, in COVID to, to name but, but one. But what projects um, are you most excited about at the moment? And, and, and what can we hope to see more of over the next six or 12 months from LifeArc? Yep, I'm most excited about LifeArc's transition at the moment because, and in fact, COVID helped us a lot in this because what it did is it, it actually sent us all home to think 
differently about how we contribute to the work of translation of good science into product. So with all those brains that we have at home, we really realized that there's an awful lot of united activity that we could do together that actually made me think that we should move from being disease-based organization and we're looking at being a mission-based organization. Now, what the difference with that is, instead of taking individual projects into our science alone or into our advice services alone, we combine our science, our advice, and now our newfound funding. And mm. we work that into resolution of big areas of unmet medical need, which we're calling missions. So it, we're going to take a much more strategic focus on big areas of unmet medical need and then apply to them our three offerings and actually think broadly, not only what life art internally can bring to these problems, but who do we can collaborate with externally to actually solve these problems and to provide solutions. I was, um, I was lucky enough to speak to Dr. Ian Campbell only a couple of weeks ago on Extra Time um, and had the opportunity to ask him his view on, on how do you believe that the life science industry is going to develop over the next decade. Of course, Ian's going to be joining you at the, the back end of this year as your chief, your chief business officer. What are your thoughts about the next decade, Melanie? Where, where do you think we're going to be in 10 years' time? Yeah, well, I think that, um, well, LifeArc intends to be a stable and important force in the life sciences, especially stimulating the UK ecosystem, because we, we believe that there's a very strong foundation in, in fundamental research across many technologies um, that we've got to nurture and bring forward. Um, so I'm very excited about Ian joining us because, as I said, as we move to, to looking at missions, we want strategic collaborations with the big charities. We've got wonderful big charities in the UK, like CRUK, like UKDRI. And we feel that with our industrial skills, we really can take some of those very early ideas, especially if we're focusing on the combining four Ds as well, and actually work them through and work to see what is the complete package that our future commercial partners will actually benefit from and expect to see. So they might not be as demanding at the moment about those future packages and the data that should be in them, but I believe in time the, the licensors and the commercialization partners will, will need for the ease of development of these products and the accuracy of patient choice will need a lot more information around them than we currently have given or have given in the past. Of course, we're seeing more demand of that from both regulators and also the, the payer at yeah. the end of the day. So um, I'm, I'm sure you're, um, you're, you're spot on with your, your forecast for the future. We, we've, over the last six months or so, um, been exposed to so much negative press alongside some of that mm. positive around the, the COVID pandemic. Um, I, I myself have seen um, much more positive, in fact, than the negative. Is, is there something positive that you have seen in your role that makes you optimistic about the future of healthcare in the UK? Oh, definitely. Um, I think there have been a lot of positives, actually, being very sensitive also to the fact that there's obviously been great tragedy as well. But um, in the positives coming through, because of the 
force of the severity of the nature of coronavirus coming across a naive population that it forced a lot of collaboration and cooperation and very rapidly we agreed ways in which we would support some excellent clinical research in the UK and that collaboration I think we'd never seen the like of that before and the leaders of the various regulatory bodies and institutions have spent a lot of time recently actually thinking through what did happen why were we successful in this where did good come from and how do we take this forward and I'm really delighted about that and Baroness Blackwood is leading a panel to make recommendations into the government into the health minister to actually help us remember this and stick with some of the good behaviors but I'm also asking the young generation through um, a, an activity called Think 10 Perspectives because I think young people, the 30-year-olds, they've learned a lot in this particular time. And when I asked one of them, you know, what surprised you most about this pandemic? And they said, I, we just never, never knew that it took so long to develop a vaccine. We never <laughs> understood that. And I think there's been a wonderful education of people at this time that we must continue alongside all future healthcare delivery because I think then people will work with us and understand better than they have in the past. Uh, and equally I think industry didn't know that we could develop diagnostics or vaccines quite as quickly as maybe, yes, as maybe, as maybe we have during the during the pandemic. <laughs> um, well fi finally Melanie we've, we've become accustomed to asking those that sit in your chair being bombarded by questions from me if they could pick three people to sit where you are now and answer, answer such questions who, who would they be and what questions might you ask them? Okay, well, I'm going to cheat a little because I think I could have given you 10 wonderful people, but I wanted to get a diverse set for you. So um, people we have worked with and people I have met and that I just think are on the cusp of driving the next really important changes. So during um, the coronavirus pandemic, um, Kev Dalliwal from the University of Edinburgh, he's a consultant in respiratory medicine. He led the Stop COVID project and using two million pounds from LifeArc. And, and they were actually looking at testing existing and experimental drugs in COVID patients. So again, a chap on the, the leading edge of the pandemic and the learnings that came from it. A second person who, um, less well known in the UK, but is a very interesting profile for the future, is Doug Kahn, who's the CEO and chairman of Tetra Genetics, a company in Arlington, Massachusetts. Doug has 30 years of experience in startups um, to, through to publicly traded companies. And the reason I mention him, he's currently working through the complexity and need for diagnostics alongside drugs which are being designed to halt the autoimmune disease cascade that results in diseases like type 1 diabetes. Now, this is also close to your heart. Um, Adam, because such immune modifying drugs will also be relevant to treating oncology, it, albeit in a different way. But, but as we know, these absolutely must be intimately associated with diagnostics to identify and then to monitor the patient. So mm -hmm. I think he's got his heart in the world of that conundrum of the, of the association of the two. 
A third person is the um, ex-CEO of Cancer Research UK um, and now, of course, president of Grail EU. And um, it's, it's Harpal Kumar, who is a passionate advocate for better outcomes in cancer. And um, he will also speak to the importance of building partnerships, as we've seen during this pandemic. So I'm sure he'll really latch on to these the sort of rapid coalitions and cooperation that's formed. And he believes that this will really, these partnerships are essential to change the face of healthcare and help us succeed in predicting, preventing and treating diseases before their progress to a serious or chronic state and the many sequelae that go with that. And the fourth person that I'm taking a liberty of adding is Anthony Philippakis, who is the Chief Data Officer at the Broad Institute in Boston. And he's committed to bridging the gap between data sciences and medicine. And it's just a fascinating profile of being a cardiologist who specializes in rare and devastating genetic diseases, but also directing a data science platform which has over 200 data software engineers who curate, analyze clinical data. And that facility is available to us if we can only work out how to use it. And I believe that type of activity, which is very open about helping others with, um, is going to be the source of so much information that will have to be used to drive our next generation uh, medicines with their diagnostics and everything that goes with them. What an excellent foursome, each of them thought leaders and, um, and, and maybe an incredible panel at some point in the, in yes. the future. Um, well, well, Dr. Dalawal, Mr. Khan, Sir Harpal and Dr. Philippakis, your invite is in the post to come and join us on, on Extra Time. Um, Melanie, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much for sharing your career to date. You've had such a tremendous impact, um, both on patients and also on those that are following you so avidly. Keep up the good work at um, LifeArc um, and we look forward to seeing much more of you in the future. Thank you, Adam, very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care.